And so typically, when I see leaders in Intercom or in other companies in the weeds, it's because they don't trust something. And I think the first thing that the teams themselves doing the work need to figure out is, why are they here? What do they not trust? Do they not trust us, the team, the people, the, someone's role? Or is it that they don't trust something else? And so I think the conversation that people need to have, which is hard because it requires a lot of vulnerability, is to ask, why are you here? Or why is there like multiple levels of management involved? And I think that's the only way to start to open up a conversation that can progress to, okay, let's build a relationship and then I'll give you all the space and time you need to execute the strategy and we'll check it in and we'll see how it goes. And if it goes well, you won't see me unless you want to. And if not, well, we'll have to have a harder conversation. Creating great products isn't just about product managers and their day-to-day interactions with developers. It's about how an organization supports products as a whole, the systems, the processes, and cultures in place that help companies deliver value to their customers. With the help of some boundary-pushing guests and inspiration from your most pressing product questions, we'll dive into this system from every angle and help you think like a great product leader. This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Product Thinking Podcast. Today, we're joined by Paul Adams, who is the Chief Product Officer of Intercom. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, Melissa. Nice to be here. So Intercom is definitely one of, I feel like, the darling products that we all love as product managers. It helps us do our job better. How did you end up at Intercom? And what was your experience before there? Where did you work? So I was at Facebook before Intercom. I worked actually in the marketing or technically when I left Facebook. But I started in the design team, like the UX team, and made my way over to product management at Facebook. Before that, I was at Google, in the UX team at Google. Before that, I was in UX consultancies. My background is mostly in the kind of UX world, design, research. And I found my over to product management along the way. I feel like a lot of us did that too. I was also a hybrid UX designer, product manager, and I didn't know there was a difference for a very long time. Yeah. And somebody was like, oh, this isn't your job anymore. And I was very upset about that. Yeah. I was on Facebook and I was very, very happy there, honestly. And I knew two of the founders of Intercom, Owen and Des. And... I basically started helping them out and one thing led to another and they were like, hey, why don't you just come join? When I originally joined, the job wasn't product management, even though I'd done that at Facebook, to kind of take over from Owen and Des to like design the product. And in the very, very early days, we believed that we could do it without product managers. And the designers were going to be the product managers. We're going to have this hybrid role and be like, you know, it's next gen, cutting edge discipline. But uh, that didn't work out. Uh, that probably lasted like six months and then <laughs> it's time to hire PMs. It's so funny too, because we like think of Intercom, like between you and Des, you're at all the product conferences, you guys are really like promoting product management out there. But I love that you started with, oh, we don't need these people. I guess it was less, we don't need the people. It was more like we thought we had this new hybrid role, PM and design together, like one person could do both. I guess like in the early startup days, we were like 14 people in the company. And it actually did kind of work for a while. That's kind of what Des did, honestly, before I joined. He was like PM and UX together, business strategy, the whole thing, marketing, all wrapped up in one. And so it kind of works when you're tiny, but obviously once you have any sort of scale, you need to uh, like break it out. Yeah, that was kind of my experience too. When we were really tiny, I did both. And then we had to keep the company moving, so I couldn't do it all at the end of the day. But that's really interesting. So you were there at the early days of Intercom. What did it look like when you walked in and where are you at now? 
they're like worlds apart, like different planets. When I joined, like I said, it was 14 people. And so here in Dublin, uh, where I'm still based, the team here uh, was 10 people. And we were just all in one room. And it was myself, Des, Dara, who's my peer in engineering, who runs our engineering org, who's still runs it and still my peer we've been together all this time and it was just like one big room and we're kind of like all in it together in a kind of classic startup mode fighting for survival fighting for usage trying to understand if we had product market fit all the classic things today if you fast forward to today it's rapidly changed over the years we've nearly a thousand people now five offices around the world the product org is nearly 100 people so we are at a completely different scale yeah, 100 people. That's a huge difference and a pretty good size product org. So what does your product organization look like now? What kind of roles do you have? What do people do? How are you organizing them? The simplest way is to think about it is we have three functions. We have product management, product design, and what we call RAD, which is research and data science. And they're the three sub-teams within the product org. They work very closely together and we work very closely with engineering. And so in the early days, I remember when Dara and I first got to work together, you know, we kind of said we were going to succeed or fail together. And that was like a big lesson I'd had in my career. The successful product teams I'd seen at Facebook and Google were like in it together. They didn't really care what disciplines was doing. It was just like, hey, we're here together as a team to build a thing for for people and make it better and you know improve their lives in some way. And the other ones were like, all caught up in like who's doing what and what role and all this kind of stuff. And so Darren and I were said, hey, we're going to succeed or fail together. And we still think that, honestly, all these years later. Uh, but we instilled that in the teams too. So even as we grew, we first went from that amorphous blob of people to like four product teams. We hired like four PMs, four designers, and then there was four engineering managers, and they form a triad. And that triad, we basically think about that triad as like their first team. So you know, that's the people that they talk to all day, wake up thinking about and go to sleep thinking about probably too much. It's worked really well for us, honestly. You know, the triads have a lot of autonomy. We set a high level strategy and they have a lot of autonomy to execute it. And it's scaled really well. That's awesome. So one question I get from a lot of new chief product officers is, how do I think about standing up functions or different divisions underneath the product org or overseeing those people when I haven't had experience in that role. So, you know, whether they haven't been a designer, I know you've been a designer before, but, you know, overseeing data science, overseeing the research functions, how did you think about bringing that under your purview and having everybody work together? And what have you learned about actually running those teams that are not just product? Yeah, for me, it's kind of been a blessing and a curse because I'm a jack of all trades, master of none. Is maybe one way to think about it, in that I worked as a designer for a few years. I worked as a researcher for a few years. At Facebook, I was a PM for most of my time there. At Intercom, I kind of started off doing PM and design and research all wrapped in one. And so for me, I've been lucky in that I've done the job. So like as we hired designers, hired PMs, and then even hired managers for those disciplines, I've done the job. So I understand what they, they need to do. That's a curse too, because it's hard to extract yourself away when you think you can help. And so like getting out of the details in the weeds took me a few years to master. I don't know if I've still yet mastered it. I don't know if anyone does, but I'm better at it. But data science, for example, is an area where I was very, didn't know much at all. And what I learned to do over the years, and it did take years to get this right, was hire a leadership team below me that I just fully trust and we're in it together. And that's where we are today. Like I have directors and senior directors and VPs who report to me who run these orgs and run them very independently. 
And so the biggest kind of thing I would say to people who find themselves in that position is that they need to find a leader who reports to them to run the function or run the area that they trust and can empower to take it on themselves and then use them as a guide and a manager and a mentor, but they don't need the domain feedback. They're, all, they're already there. So if you were weaker in data science and you had to hire somebody to lead that, what do you do to get up to speed to make sure that you got the right person in there? In the early days, I got it wrong probably. It's probably the best way to describe it, you know. I didn't really know, but I was kind of aware enough to know, like I didn't know what I didn't know. Or sorry, I knew what I didn't know. And so, and the org changed, honestly, over time at Intercom. Like, we've gone through like different phases. Like at one stage we had product analytics, which was what data science was called back then, in the product org. Or it was actually an R&D and reported to engineering at one stage. Then it got centralized in the company. And so the data science and analytics function was centralized. So it was like a service to all the different orgs, like finance and product and engineering and so on. And then we broke it up again. So now product analytics and data science is back in my org. And what I did was lean on my peers, like other execs, for example, or like other leaders across the company to help me find the right people, interview people. I leaned a lot on other people in the company who did have domain expertise and people who knew what I was looking for, who had worked with me for a bit and tried to find that kind of like nice overlap in, they understood the role and what we need, understood the domain better than I did. Yeah, I think that's really good advice for people. <laughs> like step back and let, let some experts in to help help you figure out what you need. So if you've got this great team underneath you who are running all these different domains, what have you found your job has transitioned to now as a chief product officer? Like what's your day-to-day like? What are you responsible for versus what you delegate down to your leaders? Yeah, I delegate a lot, almost everything. <laughs> I'm still busy every day. So still working on that one. I think from the early days, like Dara and I believed in giving our teams a lot of autonomy. And this has changed over the years. So in the beginning, it was just like myself and Dara with teams reporting to us directly. And then it became like we hired managers and leaders to lead those teams. Then we formed into groups. And so, you know, once we got to a certain scale, we had to like group the teams into different areas. So we have our engage product, our support product, and they were split into two. They had a leader, you know, for different functions. And then they reported to Dara and I, and then we've scaled again. So now we kind of have like multi layers. But at every step of the way, we tried to set strategy with what you know, we saw our job as basically setting the strategy and building the team. And I think that's still basically our job. I've set the strategy. Uh, these days, it's a cross-functional strategy. And I work a lot with our CMO, Anna, and our chief revenue officer, Leandra, with Des too. And so I'm working like very horizontally across the company now. And I'm, my head is often in other orgs as much as it is in my own org. But we tried to set it up over the years so that people have a lot of autonomy. And then we would hope they give their teams a lot of autonomy. And so our job is setting strategy, then trying to make sure things are on track. The one thing, often when I talk to other product leaders, you know, I'll often chat to different people who are CPOs or like on the journey there. So I'm never in product reviews. I haven't been in a product review in years. Where I, like we're looking at the product we're building and like critiquing it and giving feedback. I've not been in one of those for honestly years. And when people hear that, they're like amazed and surprised. They're like, oh my God, you're this product leader. Why are you not like in the product meetings? And I'm like, that just does not scale and it doesn't work and it's disempowering. And yes, I, I can help people. And sometimes they'll pull me in and say, hey, Paul, what do you think of this? Or oftentimes it's like if we're, they have a dilemma, they're stuck, there's a trade-off they're making and they're not quite sure. 
or I can share contacts from our exec team. Like I might know more about what's going on in other parts of the business. But for the most part, they do it and they do an extremely good job. And so I don't need to be down there. And I'd encourage all people who are leading product teams not to be down there because it's fun down there, but it's not actually your job. That's so true. I find so many new product leaders just get way too in the weeds. They're like, I want to know every little feature you're putting out, every little story you write. And then they don't have time to set the strategy and the things that you're talking about. I'm curious. So this is kind of a flip question too, right? This is all really good advice for chief product officers. On the other side, I hear a lot of product managers who are like, my leaders are in the weeds. And sometimes I find that it's because they're not doing a good job communicating up to the chief product officer or like getting ahead of the questions or showing their work or diving into that. So as a chief product officer, you've got this massive team of 100 people below you. What types of information do you want to know? If you're not, you don't care about the product reviews as much, like what should people be bringing to you to get your feedback or show you that everybody's on track? What do you look for? It's an interesting question. As you start asking the question, it actually reminded me of a couple of things. I think are important context to try and answer the question. So one is that when I was joining in Comer, thinking about joining in Comer, I was actually still on the fence because I, yeah, I worked in Facebook at like 2010. I don't know, like more the golden era, maybe. <laughs> like it's a much bigger, giant global corporation today. So it's a very different place. Like I think Facebook when I was there was like maybe a few, couple of thousand employees. It was actually quite small. But I remember Owen and Des, we were sitting down having a drink. We were chatting about whether I was going to join and so on. Owen said to me, hey, look, you know, the best pitch I can make to you is, yes, you can design the product at Intercom and you can design the product anywhere you go, but here you can design the company. And that really struck me because I had worked in a lot of teams, especially at Google at the time, in my experience, was one where there was a lot of leaders in the weeds. Like it was a daily occurrence, like all the leaders, multiple levels of leaders would be in the weeds and it wasn't helping things. It was slowing people down. It was confusing. Sometimes leaders didn't even agree with each other. You have some kind of product review and one VP disagrees with another VP and then they leave the room and you're all like, what are we supposed to do with that? Yeah, you know, we kind of designed Intercom to, again, be the company that I would have liked to work in and did want to work in. So I don't think we had that problem en masse. What has happened though, and has happened many times over, is that there are leaders in the weeds and usually what's going on there is they don't trust what's going on. And so trust is a thing that comes up here and something that I've talked to people about many times over the years. And different people have different perceptions on, or like different kind of you know ideas of trust. For me, like trust is earned. Deeply believe that trust is earned. Other people don't. They believe that you should implicitly trust and then see what happens. In my experience, for better or for worse, for me, trust is earned. And so when someone new joins, for example, a new leader, we'll onboard them as best we can. And then slowly but surely, they'll find their feet and then off they go. And so typically, when I see leaders in Intercom or in other companies in the weeds, it's because they don't trust something. And I think the first thing that the teams themselves doing the work need to figure out is, why are they here? What do they not trust? Do they not trust us, the team, the people, the, someone's role? Or is it that they don't trust something else? And so I think the conversation that people need to have, which is hard because it requires a lot of vulnerability, is to ask, why are you here? Or why is there like multiple levels of management involved? And I think that's the only way to start to open up a conversation that can progress to, okay, let's build the relationship and then I'll give you all the space and time you need to execute the strategy and we'll check it in and we'll see how it goes. And if it goes well, you won't see me unless you want to. And if not, well, we'll have to have a harder conversation. 
when you're onboarding a new product manager or a new leader, right, trying to earn that trust, what are some signs that they're on the right path for you, right? Like, what are they doing? What are they acting with so that you go, okay, I, I think we're starting to build that bond? What do you recommend people do, basically? The biggest thing, the probably the most important thing, is to build the relationships around them. And so, a mistake I've seen many people make, and I've made it at different times in my career, not at Intercom, but I certainly made this mistake at Google many times over. I thought that people would trust me if I was smart, if I was like saying smart things and like, oh, wow, Paul really knows about research or, wow, Paul really knows about social software. We should listen to him. And oftentimes I do that in a way that at times was antagonistic, borderline like and really big debates. And that Google was a environment where people love big intellectual debates. And I kind of like fell into that and got into it. And, and I don't think that really works, you know, like, cause that's not a kind of trust based relationship. And so the first thing is the relationship with their peers. And especially if they're in that triad of like PM design and engineering. For me, like when that triad works really well, the team just thrive. They know what they're doing. They feel like they're in it together. It's easier to work on, you know, trade offs and like make decisions faster. It's easier to like delegate to one another. Like if one person goes on holidays, it's our vacation. They don't wait till they come back. They're like, hey, look, all's off. We're not going to wait for him to come back from holidays till I talk about the decision. We're just going to, we're going to make this call and go with it because we know he'll be fine and he'll, we'll talk about it when he gets back. And, and it's because they have that relationship. And so I think for the, the early signs for me are that the relationship is good. The relationship's working and people are being open-minded and investing the time to get to know one another and get to know the space. They're not coming in with like all their new ideas. And by the way, all the new ideas are fantastic a little bit later. But first, it's kind of like, hey, understand the company, understand us, and then just get to know each other and build those relationships because you're going to need that when the harder stuff comes around. So that's kind of what I've seen to work. Yeah, that's really well said. I've been in similar situations too when you talk about how you failed with it. I've also gone in there and been like, well, they hired me as a product manager, so they should just trust me to do the work. And that is not true. <laughs> it's just not how yeah. things get done anywhere in the world. So I think that's fantastic advice for anybody who's trying to consider product or even being a product leader across the board. We talked about you know when you have trust, we trust you to go execute on the strategy. How do you communicate the strategy to your team, right? Like, what are you putting together? What's the right level of direction that you've been giving people? And do you have a process at Intercom for like setting the strategy, deploying it, monitoring all that stuff? Because in my experience, I come into these organizations, they go, oh, I want autonomous teams. I want to like let all my product managers go execute. But they give them no direction whatsoever. They give them too much direction and it pigeonholes them into a product. So I'm really curious how, as you've been building this team, what you found works for actually deploying a strategy like that. You know, like right across my career, I've worked in honestly some of the most dysfunctional product teams and products you've ever seen. Some of Google's biggest failures, I was on that team, those teams. But I was also lucky enough to join other teams in Google, for example, that were highly performant. They were like Google Maps, Gmail at the time, parts of YouTube. They were like phenomenally good. And in all cases, so I'm kind of lucky enough to have seen both sides at both extremes. In all cases, the strategy side was messy, just messy. And I think the first thing people have to like appreciate is it's messy. It's messy. You know, we're all striving for like this beautiful world where 
the strategy is clear and concise and it cascades down and everyone's like, I know what I need to do, like, and off we go. One of the challenges is that we all work in internet software, I'm guessing to some degree, and the internet changes rapidly. Like, I think the rate of change is, is increasing. So like, there's more and more companies, more and more startups, more and more new things. And you're operating in a world where any kind of strategy that's like 12 months out, 18 months out, is going to have to evolve within that time frame. And we see this all the time with trying to set our strategy. And I, and I think for the most part, we have a really strong strategy at the highest level. So like we know what we want to be, we know what we need, we need to do, and we do a pretty good job of communicating it down. And then at the execution level, I think we do phenomenally well. It's one of our strengths. You know, we've built this machine and this process. It's all principles-based. So you know, the process these days is relatively light versus what it used to be. But we're a very principle-based organization. It's the middle that's messy. It's like the messy middle. Trying to translate the strategy down into the execution as it evolves and as the world evolves and as things change all around us, like the shape for customers change or business numbers change or one of our competitors comes out with something that's really compelling. Like this is all moving around us. And so what we've tried to do, you know, I don't think we do this necessarily brilliantly at times, is to just to try and keep everyone aligned. We use the word aligned and alignment a lot at Intercom. I'm sure people think would laugh so we talk about it here again. But we I mean diagrams and pictures showing like like Des has a picture that's like just a load of, a big arrow made up of loads of little arrows. And then versions where the arrows are slightly misaligned. It's like, hey, we're trying to get all the arrows going in the same direction, just generally. And then I have another one where I have like two lines up and down and like staying within the lines and staying within the strategy. And then as new people join they get told the strategy and they're on the kind of edge of the line. They, they understand the strategy, but then another new person joins and they're onboarded by the first new person and the strategy drifts as it's communicated. And then it drifts and drifts and drifts. And so the strategy hasn't even changed, but the understanding of it has because newer people told other new people what the strategy was. And that just is a byproduct of being a really fast-growing company. So, you know, we've done good and bad here at times, but what we've tried to do is embrace the messy middle and say, look, this is just how it is. And actually, a key skill that I look for in people, mostly because I've seen people with this trait do phenomenally well in their career in product, is that they kind of thrive in ambiguity. And people who really struggle with ambiguity, like Intercom's not for them. You know, and other fast-growing companies might not be for them. And they would thrive in like a more stable, slower-moving, bigger company, which, by the way, is a totally fine thing to do too. Like, the teams I used to work on, like Gmail, I'm sure Gmail is a fairly stable, slow-moving team these days in a good way, because they can't break the thing so operating at such scale. But at Intercom, for sure, like thriving in ambiguity and being really comfortable with the idea that this thing is like 70% baked. And as we get it to like fully baked, it's going to change again. I think that's a, a scale that people need to try and master. Yeah, I try to tell my students that too. A lot of them are thinking about, do I want to go startup or growth stage or really large company as a product manager. And I'd say like, if you don't like mess and you do not like ambiguity, you really want to go large company. This yeah. is just not going to be for you. Especially early stage, right? Like if you are the only product manager with the founder or anything like that, that's where it gets really ambiguous. Right. So when you're deploying the strategy and communicating it to, what ways of communication have you found really work? I know you're talking about new people coming in and other people relaying the strategy for them. Do you guys write memos? Do you have like town halls about it? Like, have you found work for communicating and explaining? We've honestly been on a bit of a journey here. In, in the early days, early days being honestly the first eight years, 
pre-pandemic, we were a face-to-face culture, deep, like locked into this idea. And we set up the office for the very earliest days. Once we had teams, we set up the office so that there was a bank of desks, which was the team. And that's like the cross-functional teams, so the PM, designer, engineers, engineering manager, the researcher, like the, the data scientists, they're all sitting together in this one bank. And our team sizes are have stayed the same size, more or less, which is like 1 p.m., 1 designer, 1 e.m., engineering manager, and then roughly about five engineers. And then we don't have back-end, front-end engineers, or we don't have a QA team either. So like it's a, kind of a full-stack product engineer. They all sit together. And the idea is like they talk to each other, like, hey, the designer and the engineer should get over each other's shoulder and go like, hey, how's that working as you're building it and so on. But the key thing we did was alongside that bank desk, there was a room called our team room. And every single team had a bank of desks in a team room. And in the team room was kind of where the magic happened. Over the years, we got bigger and our real estate became a thing, like a cost that mattered. You know, we were often asked, I walk past those rooms and they're empty. Do you really? And I'm like, well, they're, you know, yeah, maybe they're empty for half the day. But the other half or even third of the day is like where the magic happens. And so a lot of our culture was oral. It was passed on word of mouth, all hands. So we'd have big all hands and we'd share everything verbally. And then the pandemic happened. And by the way, we also had Google Docs. We do a lot of writing in Google Docs. And then the pandemic happened and it just all went sideways. And then we realized that actually teams were working great without all that stuff. And so these days, we use Google Docs, we use Google, the Google Suite. And Google Docs is the most commonly used thing to share our strategy we're doing. And then we have a lot of collaboration in the doc. So we'll encourage people to get in the doc and comment. We've designed a specific system over the years, which is before every comment, you have to label it as major, minor, or curious. And the idea there is like major means we need to talk. Like seriously, you need to talk here. This is you know, major feedback. Minor is, hey, I think we need to talk, but not now. So it's like, you know, major is like important and urgent. Minor is important, not urgent. And curious is, hey, I just am curious. Like, is, I have a question. What's going on? Like, we thought about X, thought about Y. And if we never get to curious comments, no big deal. And that's worked phenomenally well for us because it gave us discipline and gave people discipline that, okay, we're in a meeting. We're going to review the stock. We do a lot of kind of pre-reads in a meeting. So we're like, start a meeting. Okay, here's a doc. Let's pre-read 10 minutes, comment. And let's spend the next, whatever, 50 minutes discussing the comments. But people have learned to be quite diligent in how they tag them, knowing that we're not going to waste loads of time on something that's like some rabbit hole that doesn't actually matter. So these days, a lot of the strategy, almost all the strategy is in a Google Doc. And then we use other tools, by the way, for other things, like Coda is used heavily for operation, like operationalizing strategy. And we'll use Google Slides for like all hands and talks like that. But Google Docs are the bread and butter. I love Google Docs too. It's just so flexible. Yeah, it's <laughs> it brilliant. Helps with a lot of that. So you've just grown this company over you know the past ten. Now it's going to be eleven. I hear right, pretty soon years. Yeah, you've watched it all scale in the last decade. I also feel like product management has finally become a thing that we're all recognizing is is important to companies. What have you observed, you know, especially building a product for product managers, right? And what have you observed change in product management over the last decade? And what do you think product managers need to know or get better at as they start looking at, you know, careers from now into the next decade? What's different? It's a great question because I do think things have changed substantially. And I do think there are things for the 2020s. 
One of the biggest patterns I've seen is orgs within companies are blurring. So the ye olden days, which is probably like last decade, sales and marketing wouldn't talk to each other or like sales job, marketing job was to give sales leads and then sales would do whatever they do. And then meanwhile, the product org is over here, not really talking to marketing or sales. They're doing their thing and engineering is doing their thing. And then support is like way over there, not even talked to. It's a cost center to manage. And two huge lessons, two of the biggest lessons of my career, honestly, over the last kind of decade. One is the orgs are blurring. So I think the internet's driving this. And like tools like Slack, for example, where orgs can just talk to each other. But the orgs are blurring and they're starting to have to collaborate more. And a lot of that is down to changing business models too. So the rise of subscription businesses on the internet and the idea that like the customer relationship matters and loyalty matters means that you've got to care about your existing customers a lot more than you used to have to. And so a product org might also always have thought about that, but a sales org didn't really, you know, and marketing didn't really, but now they have to. And so you see the rise of like growth teams, success teams that are like in, on the boundaries and in the middle of these bigger traditional orgs and the orgs are all blurring together. And that matters tremendously because it means that the PM team in particular, the product org generally, but the PM in particular needs to be in the middle of that. And so when I hear of PM teams who don't talk to sales regularly or don't talk to customer support regularly or don't talk, I'm like, you're missing, you're not missing a trick. You're missing, I don't know, a huge component of insight and value. And you just need to get out there and get talking to all of these orgs because they need you and you need them much more than you realize. The kind of orgs blurring, and we've built the whole Intercom product around this idea that the orgs are blurring. And so when we look at like, for example, Intercom is, is designed and built for like sales, marketing, and support teams. If you go on our website, you'll see sales, marketing, and support as our kind of primary customer. And yet product teams use Intercom heavily, growth teams do, success teams do. And it's all because these orgs are like blurring together and need to work and collaborate far more than they used to. So that's, that's one thing. And I remember in, a year, in years gone by, I was a bit I wouldn't describe myself as a shy person, but like, I just didn't want to go talk to people over there. And I forced myself to and realized I've spent years just blind. So I was like, the orgs blurring together is one massive thing. The other thing, which is kind of connected, is the people who know most about your customer or user is typically not the product org. It's typically the sales team or the support team. And this was like a huge, especially for the, U, like I gave a talk, at, I think it was UX London a few years ago. You know, my main message there was, hey, the designer and the design, the UX team says, like, we are the custodian of the user. Like, we are the central place of insight on our customer. We know the customer better than anyone. You don't. You don't. The sales team do because they talk to them day in, day out. And they hear all the complaints and all the noise and all the pain. And your support team similarly hear all. And so they're actually the teams and people that you need to be learning from as much as learning from customers and each other. I think the PM role is and needs to be way more collaborative. And like, I mean, actually deeply collaborative than it might have had to be in the past. And I think there's obviously people who have all these debates on Twitter about product owner versus product manager, which I'm like, (laughs) why are you wasting your energy on such rubbish? But you're either a product builder, like a manager of the product or you're not. And if you are, you need to be talking to all of these people in all of these other orgs in your company. Because you'll just be a way better. One thing we talk about, a lot about Intercom is judgment and conviction. We want people to build judgment and then have conviction, which actually is related to the trust thing earlier. When I kind of sense out that people don't have conviction in what they're saying to me, that like erodes trust. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like we got to, I need to dig in now because 
I'm not sure you believe what you're saying. And if you don't believe what you're saying, I need to help you get to a place where you do believe what you're saying. So judgment and conviction are really important, I think, to the product role. And you can build it really fast by getting in these other orgs and talking to the people. You learn so much so fast. You just get much better at making decisions. I love that. I feel like this is a, a hill I've been dying on recently. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was just tweeting something out the other day because I was having one of our, our CPO, experienced CPOs or our mentors for CPO Accelerator. And they were telling people like, he is OG. He was the chief product officer at Calendly. And now he's at Twitter doing VP of uh, conversations over everything about tweeting. And he said, you know, one of the things that he's switching back to is trying to get research out of B2C customers now instead of B2B. Yeah. Uh, and he said, in B2B is kind of, you get to go to the sales team, you talk to the account team, I had a great relationship with them. I learned all of this stuff. And I tweeted about it because I've heard so many B2B product managers complaining that, oh, there's no way you can do user research in a B2B company. And I was mm-hmm. like, you've got customers right there. Like, yeah. you've, got, you've got teams to talk to customers. And then they go after the account managers and the salespeople and say like, well, they just come over and want to make a sale. So I'm, I'm curious to me, I think chief product officers can solve a lot of this, but I'm, I'm curious if you've had that friction with the account team or the sales team when it comes to being able to do user research with them. What would you recommend for these product managers who are feeling like they can't just go work with sales, can't just work with account executives, and they're kind of blocking them from talking to customers? Yeah, it's a great point, honestly, because here at Intercom, we don't have that culture and environment because we've curated a very specific culture and environment. But I can appreciate other companies don't have that. Here, for example, the relationship to myself and Leandra, who's our chief revenue officer and runs our sales and support team, is really important. Because we're kind of like, again, in it together, we'll kind of succeed or fail together as an exec team in the company. And then we try and like bring that downwards for like my directors and her directors. We're trying to collaborate, build much deeper collaborative relationships. The way that we've done our intercom, which is a half an answer to your question, I'll try and answer properly in a sec, is we've set up a, basically a, a kind of an awesome feedback loop. And again, it took us a few years to kind of try and refine this. But the way it works is our sales team put all of their feedback in Salesforce and tag it. We have like a very kind of specific tagging system like, hey, this is an, this is like an, about the inbox and it's about this thing. And then, okay, then the PM for like that part of the inbox can look up Salesforce and see all the tags and see all the, say, all the feedback from the sales team. So we're like consistently trying to tell the sales team, add the feedback, add the feedback, high quality feedback. And what we do is we've built a system that ranks all of the content that goes in and then we build lists, build like top 10 lists, basically. And we call this problems to be solved. And the sales team, like PTSB, and the sales team say problems to be solved all the time. Like, hey, I put that in the problems to be solved, you know. So it goes into Salesforce. And the support team, by the way, do this in Intercom. So they do the exact same thing in, in Intercom. They tie the conversation in Intercom. They obviously use Intercom as our support tool. And then we can build a list. And so we have like our support top 10, our sales top 10. And this is like a massive input into our roadmap. And then we obsess about shipping and shipping a lot fast. And one of the reasons is because we have this virtuous feedback loop where the sales team see like literally weeks after, oh, there's the thing. Awesome. I'm not going to go back to my customers and tell them that the thing I, ta- I is here. It's shit. And so this is like always a work in progress and we can always get better at it. And the quality of the feedback we get from sales can be of very different types in terms of quality. But they know because we've just told them over and over again, if you tell us about it and it's real and we can validate it, we'll build it. We want to build what our customers need. 
And like we'll do our due diligence to try and understand the problem, make sure that the sales team's representation of it is accurate and all sorts of things like that. But that's how we do it. And so in a world where the sales team, like that you're not set up in that environment, I think you need to start building bridges and building connections so that the sales team can see, hey, oh, hey, if I talk to you, it helps me. They can start simple, like get on customer calls with them. Customers in B2B, customers love talking to the product team. Love it. And they don't love talking to the sales team. So if you know, a salesperson is always saying, hey, PM, get on the call with me, get on the call with me, purely because it's going to make them look good. And the customer is like delighted the PM is there. And so there's like lots of ways in like that, simple ways to build, again, build relationships, build trust, and then say, hey, get your feedback to me in a structured way and I will build, I'll build the stuff for you. And like, we're all win. And so I think just the relationships need to be built and they can be built from the ground up. And then if you're a leader, I'd encourage people to, do the same thing at the leadership level and try and build this like nice virtuous kind of feedback loop. I think that's great advice for everyone. And the moral of the story I heard from you the whole way through this too, is just build those relationships, right? Start working together. I've seen this too. It's like be one team. Don't be sales and product. Be intercom, be the company. We're all here for the same reason. I'll give you like the flip side. I believe like every strength has a shadow. To be fair to your listeners and not say this is like a perfect world, like every strength is a shadow. And so at Intercom, I think, because we've invested so much in this culture of collaboration and like true, honest collaboration and this idea that like, hey, we're in it together, we'll succeed or fail together. The shadow is that you can get design by committee, you can get procrastination, and you can get people who are very kind. So people will say, hey, people Intercom are very kind and nice to each other. And I would say they're sometimes too nice. And sometimes it's like, hey, we just need to get on with things and make a decision here. And like, Everyone can't get an opinion all the time. So there is a shadow there. And I want to say that to give this conversation the balance it needs. That's exactly it, the balance. And if you have the relationships, it's also then easier to say, hey, thanks for your opinion. I'm now choosing to ignore it and make this decision. And we'll still be friends five minutes later. Yeah. And at the end of the day, too, it is the product manager's decision whether or not those things go on the roadmap or you build it, it's not just take everything that comes your way and go, right? It's make a decision about what's best for our goals and our company and our customers. Yeah. So thank you so much for being on the podcast, Paul. Tell us a little bit about what's next for Intercom. You just released a new product. Where can we go find out more about it? One of our biggest launches in years, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we launched a brand new inbox. We launched a new product called Switch. We released a new product called Surveys. The service product actually is, I think, a great product for PMs. One of the things actually we didn't get to talk about today in much detail was first-party data. And so like actually a big trend, you asked me earlier about trends for the next kind of decade, a big trend is the disappearance of cookies. And people go, oh yeah, cookies are going away. I heard that Chrome are going to not have cookies anymore as of 2024 or 20, something like that. It's like, no, it's real. It's actually happening. And so you will not have access to all the Loads of the data that you have today will just disappear in the blink of an eye. And so we've been saying you need to build first-party data, which is data collected from your customers and users directly with their permission. And survey, we've built a surveys product, and it's a great way to do that, actually. You know, we're using surveys, and it's connected into all of the customer record and intercom. And so people are collecting first-party data and then using it to like send targeted messages and triage support and all sorts of things. So that's actually another huge trend I forgot to mention earlier. And that's also connected to what we're doing next. Uh, we're thinking about this theme of first-party data. Uh, and other than that, kind of continuing to build the Intercom product. 
you know, we're building next generation versions of a lot of what we do, our messenger, a new version coming, in-app messaging. We have a brand new inbox. And so lots going on. Great. That sounds like so much fun. And I can't wait to go check out all the new stuff that you guys are building. Thanks again for being on the podcast. If people want to learn more about you, where can they reach out to you or follow you? The best place is on Twitter. My uh, Twitter username is Paday, which is basically Paddy with an extra A. It's P-A-D-D-A-Y. I used to be very active there. I'm less active these days, but I love hearing from people and love hearing people's questions. And anytime they mention me questions, I always try and respond properly. So I'd love to hear from people. Yeah, I had to keep remembering that your name is Paul and not Paddy. I know. All my friends actually call me Paddy. I always call everybody by their Twitter (laughs) handles. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. All my friends call me Paddy, so it can be quite confusing in my own personal life, to be honest. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, thank you so much again for being on and thank you for listening to the Product Thinking Podcast. If you like this episode, please remember to subscribe so that you get a new episode every Wednesday. We will have another Dear Melissa where we're answering all of your questions next week. So if you have any questions for me, please go submit them at dearmelissa.com and we will see you next time.